Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Uh, welcome to another amazing Saturday session. We're on day six uh, with Surah Al-Ma'idah. I'm actually really grateful that we're here. Um, the Sheikh has been battling a bad cold since last night. We were almost going to cancel, and so I'm actually really grateful that we, we made it. Alhamdulillah. So sorry that we're running a little bit late today. Um, but I wanted to um, start by sharing kind of a nice story. Um, you know, I, I, one of the greatest things about just, you know, being um, a partner to Sheikh is that learning happens all around the day um, at, in, you know, different points. And um, as I mentioned in my weekly email last night that I, I have this habit of just kind of whipping out my phone and starting to record whenever I get that feeling. Like now I have this like sort of visceral feeling like, okay, here we go. Or there's certain words where I know he'll say them and, and then it's like, okay, something really important is about to come out of his mouth. I need to grab my recorder and start recording. Um, and so actually last night when we were driving um, out somewhere, we were starting to talk. We were actually with Joe. Um, and it was a really interesting conversation. We started talking about... Um, well, about, you know, the, the khutbah from yesterday um, and just the idea of um, the word and the relationship that Muslims have with the word. Um, and so Sheikh actually started talking about how in some ways he's a real literalist because when he studies the Quran, he, you know, believes wholeheartedly that, of course, if God is going to use a word, like, for example, injustice, you know, God doesn't use a word haphazardly or for no reason, that there's a very specific reason why. And so um, in that sense, Sheikh is very much a literalist and wants to know, like, when God says injustice, what does injustice actually mean? And, um, you know, when you take into consideration all the different things that factor into an injustice, so whether it's social, whether it's political, whether it's emotional, psychological, whatever, uh, cultural, um, you know, and he really tries to examine um, carefully what, how do you identify what an injustice is? And then Joe made the point that was really important is on the flip side of that, when you actually you know, nail down what does injustice mean and what, you know, and why was injustice as a word used, then he actually f goes on the full exploration of what are the different ways that, you know, this can take hold. And, you know, you can pick any word as we've been doing in the Quran. Um, and so it's first understanding God's meaning and then seeing, you know, how do we, how do we explore that? So it could be mercy, you know, mercy meant something um, in a particular context, but then it could mean something completely different in our context. Um, and so it's a, and an actually really good example is yesterday's khutbah. So um, the khutbah is called the garb of truth and the courthouse of the self. Um, and actually, Sheikh walks through uh, the idea of, of haq or truth and what it means and, you know, how Muslims um, have in many ways lost their connection to this word, to truth and what that means. And oftentimes truth is... Um, or falsehood is wears the garb of truth, and conversely, truthhood is dressed with the garb of false of falsity. So, something that is actually true might be, you know, presented as something that's false, and you know, and vice versa. Um, and it's extremely powerful khutbah where Sheikh really walks us through many examples. Um, in you know, by of course he starts with the you know the Quranic verse about that and about how you have to be able to recognize truth. You have to you know, not ignore it. You have to discern it. And then from there, how in our current world, you know, Muslims have really lost lost touch with truth, um, and and what the implications and consequences of that are. So it's a very very powerful khutbah as always. Um, you know, and and further, I think that it's been clear that that's really been the approach 
of understanding the Quran as we've been learning as we go through each of these surahs. I mean, I think the difference between what people have here, what they hear here and elsewhere is that commitment to understanding, you know, taking God's word seriously, taking the words of the Quran seriously and really delving down into the, the deeper meaning and then, you know, fully exploring the implications of that. And, um, you know, I, a lot of times people ask, you know, what is it that makes this tafsir different? And I think it's that whole ethic of taking God's word seriously. Um, and Sheikh said, you know, if there's, if there's one legacy that he could leave behind, um, if, if in all of this work that he does, if he could, you know, inspire Muslims to reconnect with the word and take the word seriously again, that he would be satisfied that that would be, a, you know, something that would be an important part of his legacy, like that would be enough. But we see the, um, the importance of that in the work that we do here. And so anyway, just wanted to share that story. I'm so excited to continue um, on our journey with Surah Al-Ma'idah. And um, thank you everyone for joining us. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wa subhanallah al-Ali al-Azim. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala al-Habib al-Mustafa. Muhammad al-Nabi al-Ameen. Khatam al-Rusli wal-Anbiya'i ajma'in. النبي المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله الأطهار الميامين وعلى أصحابه المختارين وعلى من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين 65 Um, my, I know that we have to do a better job of, of starting on time, but I especially apologize for tonight because uh, just um, not feeling well. And um, uh, I need uh, I need a madad. Um, inshallah, it will come. A madad min Allah. Uh, and so I'm just being um, with with all the, the the aches and so on. It's um, I'm, I'm, I feel a bit off. Um, so forgive me. I'm told we stopped at sixty five. Okay, so um, the next section in Surah Al-Ma'idah, which again, when It's natural for human beings to engage a text, whatever text it is, um, with, within the epistemological priorities of their time. 
And so it is not surprising that the section that we are going to talk about next um, it is it is truly revolutionary and was revolutionary in, in its time and I think in my opinion remains revolutionary but the reality of imperial the imperial legacy building an empire and the fact that you had scholars being born in an imperial moment because we know that most of the tafsir uh, at least the, the, the written script, systematic written script and tafsir, um, are not compiled until the Abbasid era and onwards. And so the reality of a, an imperial polity is, 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 is existent and, um, and that reality has produced institutions and structures on the ground and often reading the text it is very difficult to um, to unearth the norm, norms of a text in a way that is liberated from your historical context. Now, so for instance, although Surat al-Ma'idah, we, we, it's beyond debate that this is the last major revelation and that it is so late um, and it is the, the, the last main revelation before the Prophet um, dies. But it is quite common in Islamic theology to read or learn the ayat al-sayf, the so-called the, the verse of the sword, abrogated. In, I mean, you can't even say abrogated everything before it because in reality, the claim is that it's abrogated everything before it and everything after it including Surat al-Ma'idah, which is an odd interpretive development, right? I mean, how could what was revealed earlier abrogate what is revealed later? But the surprise or the puzzlement as to that type of argument and that type of claim is, is removed once you understand that it would take thinking out of the box completely to actually divorce the, the, the message of Surah Al-Ma'idah from the imperial rea reality that demanded justification and demanded legitimacy. Arguing that Ayat al-Sayf abrogates everything before and after was very consistent with what the empire needed. 
And that's not un at all exceptional or unusual. We have, you know, everything from theology to music to art served the imperial project wherever it existed, whether that imperial project was Muslim or non-Muslim. So when you look at quite a bit of the art and during the Byzantine era, or even the religious music during the Byzantine era, uh, or the literary texts during the Byzantine era, all of it poured into supporting, legitimating, upholding the imperial project. So the fact that we see that in Islam is not unusual. It's, it's actually the most natural thing and the most expected thing. However, a living text, a text that continues to generate relevance and generate meaning, must be able to investigate and scrutinize historical contexts and divorce itself from historical contexts that imposed a particular meaning at a particular time when that context is no longer relevant. And we see a prime example of this in Surah Al-Ma'idah. So, we get in 65, first, the criticism and remember, every time God directs a criticism against the Israelites, it is not to pick a fight. It is to teach a lesson. So when Allah criticizes the Israelites who has a conception of God, not as truly sovereign or truly supreme. This is when we, the, that says that some Jews have said that God's hands are shackled. Yadullah What that amounts to is that you are, your conception of a deity has made that deity substandard to your own priorities as the recipients of the covenant. So the deity is not truly sovereign anymore, but the Israelite people are sovereign. The, the deity is not truly supreme anymore, but the Israelites, and more specifically, the rabbinic class is supreme. The rabbinic class are the true sovereigns because they are the true inheritors of the law. And they are truly the supreme because, again, they are the, 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 the law has been handed over to them. And that conception, which serves the idea of a chosen people well, it serves the idea of a chosen people well because it is the chosen people who represent embody the 
legacy of divinity. But from an Islamic perspective, it amounts to the, to the adoption of basic materialism or existentialism um, as really, even if it's this existentialism privileges a single class of people, but it, it effectively makes God subservient and a non-priority. And so, which poses a problem to what? It poses a problem to thinking ethically and morally. So God's law, so if, to be concrete, if the rabbinic class, as, as the Quran points out, or the priestly class justify the consumption of corrupt money, or justify dealing in usury, because in Jewish law, it is prohibited for a Jew to deal with another Jew in usury, but it is not prohibited for a Jew to deal with a non-Jew in usury. It is critical to, to internalize that Islam was a rebellion against such exceptionalist way of thinking about morality. Because unfortunately, imperial Muslims did fall in the trap of reproducing the pattern of exceptionalist thinking. And of, although paying lip service to God's sovereignty and supremacy, in, in many contexts, the, uh, the class of shiuch did become like a rabbinic class or a priestly class. But that, of course, comes much later. But the Quranic reality, the Quranic message, the Quranic norms, are it's very critical to fully uh, internalize and digest uh, this morality. Okay. And... So when you hear the Quran says, "Walau annahum aqamu tawrata wal injila wa ma anzala ilayhim min rabbihim la akalu min fawqihim wa min tahti arjulihim minhum ummatun muqtasida wa kathirun minhum sa'a ma ya'malun." This is a revolution people. Truly a, an ideological revolution. So this is 66. And if they would but truly observe the Torah and the gospel and all the revelation that has been bestowed from on high upon them by their sustainer, did would, they would indeed partake of all the blessings of heaven and earth. Some of them do pursue a righteous course. But as for most of them, vile indeed is what they do. So, you don't have another example. You don't have another example of 
a system of faith that tells it, let's use I'm not comfortable with using this term but I'll use it for just to convey the meaning that tells a competing system of faith be true to yourself you know even in the modern age this is I mean in the field of comparative law legal colonialism is is a well-documented phenomena in legal sociology that although in principle we we say we respect pluralism but in reality it is very difficult for technocrats trained within a legal system to recognize the legitimacy or the credibility or even the plausibility of another legal system, especially when the other legal system is on the defeated side. And so this is a vast area of legal sociology. Legal sociology have documented how even when, and right now, uh, the, the prime colonial legal system in the world is the American legal system. Uh, how American technocrats, meaning American lawyers, even when they go to another legal system, even when they go to Australia or they go to New Zealand or they go to Britain, and even when they are trained in the principles of tolerance and coexistence. The natural, by training and by experience, they tend to colonize whatever inferior legal system or whatever, sorry, whatever weaker social setting they come into contact with by having American legal institutions, American legal principles replace whatever the domestic system is. And that's a phenomenon that we, we've witnessed even, I mean, China is a complicated case because the Chinese government has tried to very consciously push back. But while even, even look at the number of Chinese students, for instance, who come to study get an LLM in American law schools. And so for what is this text here saying to Christians and Jews? It's saying God's law is one. You know and if you were sincere in applying, and here, what is the God's law that this text is talking about? Is it talking about the law of the Sabbath? I don't think so. Is it talking about the technicalities of ecclesiastical law and the, the law of the church? It is talking about precisely the issue that Surat al-Ma'idah consistently engaged is the corruption of justice through the logic of exceptionalism and the attempt of 
Jewish tribes, all the reports we have are about Jewish tribes. I mean, we don't really have reports about Christians. But the attempt to cut a deal with the Prophet by which they maintain this these legal systems that they had generated that privileged the privilege and functioned within the logic of elitism and aristocracy, which was the common logic in medieval systems. I mean, it was a person was, if you're born into a feudal system, you looked at yourself as a serf. And you never dared imagine that the law that applies to a serf ought to be the same as a law, the law that applies to a lord. It was unthinkable. It's not something that you even imagined. So when they went to the Prophet and said, let's do this, they were not saying something that you know, was conspiratorial and evil. They were reacting the way that their historical context said they should react. Okay, we, we can coexist with you, Muhammad, but don't ask us to degrade our elite. Don't ask us to treat our nobility like our commoners. Exactly what the Meccans had a problem with. And Surah Al-Ma'idah comes and repeatedly hammers in the message, no. It cannot be. And in fact, it reminds them that the, the, the revolution, the legal revolution of equality and equality and justice didn't start with Muhammad. It started with your messages. This is at the, if you truly went back and read that Injil read the New Testament and read the Torah, divorced of their historical corruptions, you would know that this is God's law, true, true God's law. The, the God's law that does not vary. So when it comes, it's, it says to them, that you guys, if you truly aqamu al-Tawrah wal-Injil wa ma anzala ilayhim min rabbihim what they had reclaimed God's law, true God's law, the moral law of God, that they would be, when Allah tells them, they would have, as Muhammad Asad put it, puts it, they would indeed partake of all the blessings of heaven and earth. Mean, that means what? It means Allah would be pleased with them. If you guys upheld your own ethical law, And when Allah alerts us by telling us, Minhum ummatun muqtasida, there are some of them 
who ummatun muqtasida mean a righteous ummah but most of them sa'ama ya'malun Allah is telling us what be discerning be careful there is a professor at UCLA who published an article this is like what he his his, his scholarship project that he became well known for he's not a muslim professor but he went into islamic sources and found that in islamic sources there is plenty of poetry and plenty of literary texts for instance in al farid praising particular jewish or particular christian individuals so a poem is written about how this particular jewish person was so kind and generous and moral and because he is an orientalist he said wow this is so surprising muslims who praise jews and christians instead of hate jews and christians i better write an article better write a book about this to tell the world i've discovered this amazing phenomenon but you read through his entire scholarship and he doesn't once not he nearly is interpreting this as a sociological necessity like muslims needed jews and christians to do business to do accounting to run their uh, uh, civilization so they had to they had to learn to respect jews and christians not once through his entire scholarship his book or articles does he recognize that the ethic of discernment was taught by the quran it is the Quran and the proof of that read what someone Tabari for one but Imam al-Awza'i has a risala that truly deserve to be translated and public and again if Muslims were in ownership of their own tradition Imam al-Awza'i in his risala written to the khalifa of his time what happened was that the byzantians invaded a province of uh, uh, a province within the umayyad dynasty and that province was inhabited by christians and they enslaved they took they captured all these christians and they enslaved them and they were going to sell them into slavery as was the common practice of the time and the Byzantians said well the fact that you're Christian doesn't make a difference because you really belong to the Muslim Ummah and some as Al-Za'i describes in his Risala some what he describes as ignorant and narrow and, and narrow-minded Imams told the Khalifa don't waste valuable resources liberating these people because they're christian they're not muslim so don't pay the byzantines 
to buy their freedom. And Imam al-Awza'i writes this remarkable risala, citing a hadith and Quran and, and, and his, crit, his main argument to the Khalifa is that it is mandated by the Quran to think of these Christians as part of the Muslim Ummah. And because they are part of the Muslim Ummah, he is incurring an affirmative sin if he doesn't buy their freedom for the Byzantines, which eventually, in fact, the, 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 the Khalifa does respond to the Imam al-Zai by buying their freedom, uh, uh, giving the Byzantines a substantial amount of gold and silver to buy their freedom. But the remarkable thing is I've researched if anyone has written a word about this Risala. Nothing. Muslim or non-Muslim. I mean, can, can you imagine if this Risala existed in, in, in any tradition, if this was a Jewish Risala, if this was a Christian Risala, it is clear from reading the Risala like this, the influence of Surah Al-Ma'idah upon, upon Imam al it is literally he's paraphrasing Surah Al-Ma'idah to the Khalifa and telling him the error, the problem, the, the thing we have with these people is that they don't, they fail to follow the ethical laws of Ibrahim salam. Well, if they correct themselves by following the ethical laws of Ibrahim salam, then we have no problem with them. And we cannot presumptively assume that they will fail to follow the ethical laws because that would be hukm by dhan, that would be judgment by speculation. And if Allah knows that all of them or some of them or one of them would in fact follow Allah's true ethical laws, then and and the Khalifa failed to save this person, then the Khalifa would incur the sin of the error in the hereafter. It's if you know the medieval world, your mind would be blown. The reason our minds, you know, we we are like, is because we are historically challenged people. Uh, our history was colonized, and we are raised with children's stories rather than actual history. There's a huge difference between historical thinking and fairy tales that. Muslims are raised with uh, that they treat as if history. Okay, so now look. So then 67, we're not quite done with 66 either, but but I'll come back to it. Okay. Um, 67. يَا أَيُّهَا الرَّسُولُ بَلِّغْ مَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ وَإِنْ لَمْ تَفْعَلْ فَمَا بَلَّغْتَ رِسَالَتَهُ 
والله يعصمك من الناس إن الله لا يهدي قوم الكافرين So 67 O prophet O apostle convey or teach all that God has been bestowed from on high upon you by your sustainer for unless you do so you will not have delivered God's message <clears throat> and God will protect you from unbelieving or God will protect you from people it doesn't really say unbelieving unbelieving is in brackets God will protect you from people God does not guide people who refuse to acknowledge the truth okay so first In the Islamic tradition, there are reports that, ha that, going back to 66 for a second, that when, when Allah talks about minhum ummatun muqtasida, ولو أنهم أقاموا التوراة والإنجيل وما أنزل إليهم من ربهم لأكلوا من فوقهم ومن تحت أرجلهم أرجلهم منهم أمة مقتصدة. So this expression that there is of them faithful people or just people in the Islamic tradition there is a discussion as to who this Ummah Muqtasida, I mean, I'm talking about here a hadith about reports. So some that say um, what here this uh, uh, refers to is the hadith that Christianity will split to, I don't know, 73 sects and Judaism will split to, I don't, you know, 70x sects or whatever. No, all of them in hellfire except for one. And that what, what the Quran is talking about is that one, one sect that is saved. But most scholars recognize that there is a problem and that this hadith is a mawdu'ah. It's a fabricated hadith. Although, unfortunately, you find modern Muslims citing it quite often that Judaism splits an X number of sects, all of them in hellfire except one, same thing with Christianity, and same thing with Islam. Um, do the research uh, on this hadith, and it, from kullu turuq, um, is, it's problematic. There are another group of traditions that says, most of them go back to Mujahid. That uh, Banu Israel, the Israelites, disagreed about Isa. That some of the Israelites said that Isa, Jesus, who Allah, is Allah. And these became a sect of what be, you know developed into Christianity or um, and a group said that he is Ibnullah the son of God and that also developed into a sect of Christianity or the many sects of Christianity 
and that a group of Israelites said about Jesus, not that he was a fraud, but that he was a Abdullah, um, and that those are Muslimat Ahli Kitab, that the, 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 the group of Israelites didn't believe that Jesus was God or the Son of God, but simply a servant of God. And that these, this group of Israelites are designated or known as Muslimat Ahli Kitab, the, the people of the book who are Muslims. I investigated this tradition, and again, it's very problematic. And most scholars and most commentators rejected the authenticity of this tradition. So I just wanted you to, to know, because you know so you might tell someone um, 66 sex, uh, says X or Y and say, oh, no, no, this is talking about Muslim at Ahl Kitab, because I, you know, pretenders love to pick up stuff that sounds weird. Oh, this to talk about Muslim at Ahl Kitab, and this is talking about, you know, this, all of that has is without foundation. Okay. Now, going back to 67. And, and I, I would, you know, I, I would love to move on, but 67, subhanAllah, has played a huge role in Islamic history. We have a group of scholars that the only way they could reconcile 67, because what is Allah saying? Allah is saying to the Prophet, deliver God's message. And if, if you don't properly deliver God's message, then you've betrayed your trust. That's effectively what the language means. Now, the issue that you find a lot of reports about is whether the Prophet ﷺ knew something but hid it. So you, despite the fact that here Allah says in the Quran to the Prophet, say de deliver the message and if you don't you've broken your trust and deliver the message and don't fear people because god will protect you from people unfortunately you find these uh, and and you find again a certain type of shiuch that love to teach this material for some strange reason that um that people would go to the Prophet and say, have you concealed something of the message that you didn't tell us about? And you get these reports where the Prophet implies yes, that the answer is yes. How could it be? Maybe I'll give you just a, a quick taste. Uh, 
Um, of course, a quick taste, was, in my case, will be a slow taste because of my cave-like way of dealing was... Okay. Yeah, so okay, uh, here, so, عن كنت عند ابن عباس فجاءه رجل فقال إن ناسا يأتوننا فيخبرون بأن عندكم شيئا لم يبده رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم للناس فقال ألم تعلم أن الله قال يا أيها الرسول بلغ ما أنزل إليك من ربك والله ما ورثنا والله ما ورثنا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم سوداء في بيضاء anyway so some of these reports in which people say oh there was something that the prophet did not transmit other reports say that people are, there are rumors going on that the Prophet withheld something from the message that he did not communicate. And they go to someone like Mujahid and they say, you know, is it true that he was held something that he never communicated? And he would, and Mujahid say, no, it's not true. We, he, everything that he had, he did to transmit. Anyway, so there were a group of scholars to approach this more a bit more systematically, that said that this verse, although it's in Surah Al-Ma'idah, must have been revealed early on in the prophets, even some of them claimed that it's Meccan. But then the Prophet for whatever reason said it should go here in Surah Al-Ma'idah. So they tried to resolve the issue about Allah telling the Prophet ﷺ, say everything, don't hold anything back, because they recognize that. Why is it coming so late? What, what is the cause that it's in the ninth hijra, shortly before the Prophet ﷺ dies, and Allah is telling him, teach everything, don't hold anything back, don't fear people. So he said, it doesn't make sense that it's coming so late. It must have be that it came early on, but it was just added to Surah Al-Ma'idah. Others said, no, what this is really talking about are as the time of the Prophet especially that Allah knew that the Prophet is going to get ill and there are going to be discussions about inheriting the Prophet and what comes after the Prophet, that there are going to be rumors about the, the Prophet holding something back, concealing something, and that Allah wanted to disabuse people of these rumors in, in this revelation. 
In esoteric traditions, they say that the reason that Allah told the Prophet this is because Allah knew that the Prophet, in fact, did hold back truth that Muslims could not handle and that it is only the elite of the elite who, and this is, for instance, this ayah became very significant in the development of Ismaili thought and Ismaili theology, and it is often cited as uh, evidence that uh, there, there are certain things that, you know, only the chosen can be privy to. I've even read a, a Durzi text that quoted this ayah, which was very interesting because, I mean, the Duru's are, are a whole another story. Um, this ayah also became central in the whole Ghadir Khum debates and controversy. And in a nutshell, the narrative about Ghadir Khum is that Muslims stop in an area called uh, Ghadir Khum, and purportedly the Prophet tells Muslims that Imam Ali is his inheritor. And that a class of Muslims are not willing to accept this message and that what Allah is telling the Prophet to make sure to disclose is Imam Ali's special status as the inheritor of the successor to the Prophet ﷺ. You can read a great deal about Ghadir Khum. And the, the, the surprising thing is that Sunni sources say that Ahadith Ghadir Khum are authentic. Not, I mean, a lot of Sunnis think that it's just Shia sources that say that, but a lot of Sunni sources. Uh, say that the hadith Ghadir Khum is authentic, but they interpret it differently, that they interpret it as a, as a moral successorship, immoral inheritance, as that Alil Bayt are the moral guides of the Ummah, not intended to, to be the political re- leaders of the Ummah. And that, that's where, you know, but I have, for instance, a book that's eight volumes about Hadith Ghadir Khum, and you can sit there and, and you, you know, you, your, your brain is blown as you finish volume after volume about all the debates, about all the riwayat, and so on. My own research, however, I don't think, I, with all due humility, I think the, look at what comes before this ayah and what comes after this ayah. What comes before and after deals with those who received the message before us and their this is right after, this is 68, right? Say, O followers of the Bible, you have no valid ground for your beliefs unless you truly observe the Torah and the Gospel and all that has been bestowed from on high upon you by your sustainer. 
So it is a reaffirmation of what we get in 66. So that begs the question, why this ayah sandwiched between the, the, the two discourses where you are telling the people of the book, follow your ethical laws. The answer, I mean, it's so that, and that is why, as I said, some scholars said, oh, well, that means that this ayah was revealed much earlier and it was just, you know, injected there as they were collecting the Quran. I found no evidence of that. I found absolutely no evidence to support the claim that this ayah was rejected. And I think that when you look at the collective picture of what was going on at the time of Surah Al-Ma'idah and what the message before and after this ayah, I think this ayah was shoved into a political controversy that it had nothing to do with. That's my opinion, Allahu A'lam. What I think it's about is that, remember that there are many people who are becoming, joining Islam. This is now the, the period where you have people who are coming into droves into Islam. The reality of, though, is that not everyone that came to Islam understood the elevated morality of Islam. Many of the people that came to Islam came to Islam and wanted to join it as if they're joining a tribal clan. They're, they're joining a team against another team. And absolutely, when they joined, they looked at those who are not Muslim, typical imperial logic, medieval imperial logic, and said, they have rights? What rights? Why should they have rights? You know, why can't we now usurp all the... We're Muslim. We've joined the right team. Why, why can't we pounce on the Christians and Jews and usurp all their properties and take their women and take their children and throw them out. That, that's good medieval logic. And what Muslim sources commonly called the munafiqun, but they were not just munafiqun, they were, they were opponents, they were dissenters, were giving the Prophet ﷺ a very hard time the irony is he was tolerant towards them. He didn't arrest or, you know, move to suppress the, the, the so-called hypocrites. But they were, they were upset about the tolerance he showed parties who were not Muslim. They couldn't understand it. I mean, what type of Arab are you? You, we now are, are coming in, and that is also, I mean, when again if Muslims wrote their own history I assure you that you will find so many testimonials that the period of Abu Bakr, Omar and especially Ali Osman which was a complicated situation but even even Osman 
this is a period where people of the book testified that they felt secured and respected. Under imperial Islam, it became more complicated. It's, you know, then we get into material benefits and, you know, are, are, is this minority beneficial for me? You know, do I, do I, do, is the state overall, the empire, burdened by this minority or does it benefit from this minority? We, we get people like Awza'i, but we also get people like Ibn Taymiyyah, who much, of course, much, much later on. Um, we get someone like Imam al-Thawri, who, who is also like Imam al-Awza'i, who is arguing that the morality of Ali al-Bayt was a, a, to think of them as part of the Ummah and not outsiders to the Ummah. While Imam al-Shafi'i, if you read al-Shafi'i, you find he's, he's sort of influenced by imperial Islam um, and compare him to uh, Imam Abu Hanifa, or at least what was reported about Imam Abu Hanifa. While if you read Shaybani's seer, you find the, the full impact of imperial Islam. So, but what was the issue at the time of the Prophet the issue was that the Prophet was standing, standing by principle and saying, this is what Allah is telling me about the people of the book. It is not as simple as, oh, you're Muslim, which, which is exactly the logic of the Israelites and exactly the logic imposed by the church, is all you have to do is accept whatever the church tells you, and you go to Jannah. Uh, all you have to do is accept whatever the rabbis tell you, and you go to Jannah. In, under Islam, it, is, it doesn't work that way. And in fact, morality is independent and nuanced. And so the tendency to come and say, well, we Muslims have, Jannah is exclusively for us, while Christians and Jews are out of luck this is what Allah is, it, it is, it is, to me, it's quite obvious that Allah is saying, don't let people influence you. This is not about popularity. This is not about appeasing the, the new Muslims who want to feel Muslims are superior to others. This is about a serious ethical project, a covenant that has to be upheld. And that is why, right after this ayah, قُلْ يَا أَهْلِ الْكِتَابِ لَسْتُمْ عَلَى شَيْءٍ حَتَّى تَقِيمُوا التَّوْرَةِ وَالْإِنْجِيلِ وَمَا أُنْزِلَ إِلَيْكُمْ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ وَلَيَّزِيدَنَّ كَثِيرًا مِنْهُمْ مَا أُنْزِلَ إِلَيْكَ مِنْ رَبِّكَ طُغْيَانًا وَكُفْرًا فَلَا تَأْسَ عَلَى الْقَوْمِ الْكَافِرِينَ So, this is 68, right? Followers of the Bibles, you have no valid ground for your beliefs unless you truly observe the Torah and the Gospel, and that all that has been bestowed from on high upon you. But then it goes back to the Prophet وسلم, and says, Understand that the message sent to you, this Islamic message that takes you back to God's true message to humanity, 
many of people will react to it, of the of Christians and Jews will react to it by playing the same type of uh, competition games, tribal competition games, that you find from some of the hypocrites by basically saying, well, you know, we're not going to listen to your message. We're not even going to listen to the nuance of your message. Why should the truth come to you? As in the same way that although Tatawra says that the Al-Masih, the Messiah, will be a descendant of Ismail, but yet that interpretively was corrupted to obscure the 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 text in the Torah that says that it's going to be the descendant of Ismail who will the prophet that will come at the end of times many people regardless of this nuanced message in which the prophet is telling them you know what God's true law of justice was or is don't come to me and ask me to join your corruption by altering God's law. And ideally, people should listen to this and say, wow, you know, thank you for reminding us of what we've forgotten. You know, and react in a very decent way. But the, but understand that much of the opposition you are seeing is that quite simply, we don't care what truth you bring, what your message is, because we are offended by the fact that it was given to you. But in this, and Imam Arabi, Ibn Arabi has a very wonderful passage in his Futuhat about this. He's saying, he says, I forgot how he phrased it, but he says that, understand that in the vast majority of time if people would give themselves the chance to listen to a message he's talking about Risalat al-Haq the message of truth they would embrace it but that the vast majority of time, people never get to the stage of listening. Because for psychological reasons, they are in defiance or in denial or in competition. And so Ibn Arabi is saying, understand, beware, that you are going to think that people actually listened to the message that you are teaching them. But beware that in the vast majority of time, they've heard nothing. For reasons that have nothing to do with the message. Of course, he goes on to say that then, you know, if you really want people to listen, you have to help them heal so that they will to disarm them to listen. But, you know, of course, he the spiritual journey that he teaches so people can get to the point of disarming is very difficult. I mean, because it requires, what he's teaching is spiritual elevation as at a very, um, 
But anyway, so he he cites and he discusses this passage from Surah Al-Ma'idah, um, which incidentally, I mean, although Ibn Arabi has in in his Futhat, he several times drops hints throughout the Futhat that Muslims corrupted the understand that they did not give Surah Al-Ma'idah its proper place in the Quran. And when I first read that, I didn't really understand what he's talking about. It took me the entire journey to then go back and say, well, okay, now it makes sense. That's what he's talking about. Okay. So now, look, what follows that is the reaffirmation of this very tough message for followers of a faith you want to believe your faith is correct. And because you want to believe your faith is correct, you want to imagine that it is an exclusive club, that truth equals exclusivity. The idea that there are venues to truth that you should hold steadfast to your faith, but still that salvation is, could come through a, another path. It, it, it is, Ibn Arabi is right. It, it, it's amazing the extent to which human psychology wants to resist that, wants to deny that God can recognize salvation or affirm salvation for someone except those who went through, because as a Muslim you say, you know, I pray, I fast, I do zakah, I didn't fornicate. So you want to tell me someone else can, who haven't followed all these rules can have a reason for salvation? How could it be? Uh, you know, someone who hasn't prayed all the prayers every day, you know, and it, 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 it offends me. The idea offends me that you're telling me. But look. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَالَّذِينَ هَادُوا وَالصَّابِئُونَ وَالنَّصَارَى مَنْ آمَنَ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَعَمِلْ صَالِحًا فَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ So, this is 69, right? Um, for verily those who have attained to faith in this divine writ as well as those who follow the Jewish faith and the Sabians and the Christians and all who believe in God and the last day do righteous deeds no fear need they have near shall they grieve it means what it says I mean you'll find people doing cartwheels to interpret it and say, no, no, no. It means Christians who interpret Christianity to be the law of Islam. So Christians who pray five times a day and fast Ramadan, it doesn't make sense. What Allah is saying, what Allah has been saying throughout Surah Al-Ma'idah is that Allah looks to the substance of Risalat al-Haq. 
you have a path that was given to you. Now, the moral worth of human beings who believe in God, who believe in the hereafter, and amila salihan, and who do good, their desert, that's to God. But Allah says, they have no reason to fear. Now, can we then say, oh, you know, the good news, we are guaranteeing all of you Jannah. Obviously, that is remarkably arrogant. All you have to say is, if you are a believer, and you believe in the hereafter, and you do good, what Allah says is you have no reason to fear. Now, what is it that we fear? We fear an injustice being done unto us. If you are a good human being, you do not fear justice. You might recognize that justice will require that you be punished, and you find that very unpleasant, but if you are truly a decent human being, you'll say, you know, I'm going to pay my dues. I deserve it. I did wrong. May Allah forgive me. But what you fear is to be treated unfairly. And when Allah says they have no reason to fear, that extreme, and when I say it was a revolution, it was way ahead of its time. And it remained ahead of its time because Muslims never quite came to terms with what Surah Al-Mad is saying. This is the last revelation. And when you think, I mean, people who, I, I often, I, I don't know, people are strange. When some, you know, some people who know nothing, you know, the, the, the typical, uh, um, typical prototype of a doubter, Someone who says, oh, I have a crisis of faith. I have so many questions. Uh, uh, can I please sit and talk to you about all my doubts? No, you, no, you can't. Because do your homework. And, and, and if you had any sophisticated understanding, this is at a time where every human text, not coming from a god, what it would do, it would encourage victory. And it would call upon people, come to Islam, we are the victors. Join the winning team. You know, to hell with the losing team. Damned be the losing team. You know, you marshal the forces. This is what human texts have done throughout history. And especially if the Prophet ﷺ is feeling you know, this might be the end, and and he cares about his family, and he cares about, it's like, you know, I don't want to give any legitimacy to those who might challenge us. Because, in fact, as I said before, what happened was the ilm kalam the entire field of ilm kalam it was because Christians and Jews were legitimated enough to actually write systematic critiques of the Quran and of Islam, which Muslims didn't feel free to simply respond by violence, but wrote treatises responding to these treatises. Now, 
And Orientalists, like the person I was talking about, say, well, Muslims didn't respond to violence because they needed these Christians and Jews. But that's a generality. That's not that you can look at the micro examples and you can find numerous examples of tolerance where there was no need. Like the example of Auzai and the, 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 the Christian group that was captivated by the Byzantines. That's the difference between people who deal with a colonized history and people who actually navigate their own history. Is that if you navigate, simple generalities are not satisfying for you because you have the passion, you want to understand the facts on the ground. But colonized histories, everything is given some convenient interpretation that is more mythology than any addition to any historical awareness. Okay, so again, going back to this point, you know, I I don't know, this is the, the, the challenge for a scholar, right? You know, a scholar reads thousands of books and from the thousands of books develops a an awareness of what is truly exceptional in human experience and what is not exceptional at all in human experience. The fact that Muslims gravitated to, towards Ayat al-Saif is not exceptional. That's completely expected. The fact that the Quran is giving legitimacy to people that it's supposed to crush at this point, that's mind-numbing. That's revolutionary. I don't have another example in all the texts that I've read in all the languages that I know. But how do you communicate that to, to Muslims who don't read? How do you get Muslims to understand the enormity of the realization when you know, they, they, they think being an engineer or a computer scientist or a doctor is the height of achievement. Um, okay, let's take a two minute and a half break. Two minutes and a half. Bismillah rahman rahim Okay. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay. Surah Al-Ma'idah then goes back to the central theme. And remember, I mean, it's at this point, if you get an opportunity to review what we said about Surah Al-Baqarah, it, it gives you a cohesive sense of the full cycle that was traversed. لَقَدْ أَخَذْنَا مِثَاقَ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلِ وَأَرْسَلْنَا إِلَيْهِمْ رُسُلًا كُلَّمَا جَاءَهُمْ رَسُولٌ بِمَا لَا تَهْوَ أَنفُسُهُمْ فَرِيقًا كَذَّبُوا وَفَرِيقًا يَقْتُلُونَ This is 70. That we've taken the covenant from the Israelites, 
Muhammad Asad translates it as a solemn pledge. We accepted a solemn pledge from the children of Israel and we sent apostles unto them. But every time an apostle unto them was anything that was not to their liking, they rebelled. To some of them they gave the lie, while others they would slay. Um, the only thing I want to say about this is that Subhanallah, that the if you the details of the rebelliousness of the Israelite people against many of the prophets that Allah sent to them is interestingly enough documented in the Torah. I mean, the 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 narrative of the Torah. It's, it's sometimes you, you think this 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 must be somewhat exaggerated because of maybe exaggerated in in the sense of the way that medieval texts told narratives, but the way that the Torah itself documents the rebelliousness of the Israelites against prophets that God sent them. Um, so anyway, وَحَسِبُوا أَلَّا تَكُونَ فِتْنَةٌ فَعَمُوا وَصَمُّوا ثُمَّ تَابَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ ثُمَّ عَمُوا وَصَمُوا كَثِيرٌ مِّنْهُمْ وَاللَّهُ بَصِيرٌ بِمَا يَعْمَلُونَ So, 71, thinking that no harm would befall them, and so they became blind and deaf of heart. Thereafter, God accepted their repentance. And again, many of them became blind and deaf. But God sees all that they do. Note here this expression, وَحَسِبُوا أَلَّا تَكُونَ fitna." That having received the covenant and having failed in observing the terms of the covenant, keep in mind that the, the, this is a message to Muslims. Failing in keeping the covenant, the, the consequences of that is the fitna, m- meaning turbulence, hardship. Um, how does Muhammad Asa translate it? He just translated as thinking that no harm would befall them. But حَسِبُوا أَلَّا تَكُونَ فِتْنَةً Yes, harm, but consequences to your moral failure. And as the Bible itself documents that time and again, God forgives the Israelites and they return again to the same conduct, uh, to the same offensive conduct with the prophets. And again, what I take from this is the message to Muslims. If Muslims become deaf and blind, it's like what I was talking about in the khutbah yesterday. When Allah talks about haq, truth, or Allah talks about 
or Allah talks injustice, or Allah talks about adl or qist, justice. And it doesn't resonate with those who receive the message. That's exactly what being deaf and being blind is. And rest assured that like the Israelites, Allah gave Muslims repeated opportunities. In my view, I mean, I never, I can never get over the fact that after colonialism, Allah literally just put in the hands of Muslims the very instrumentality uh, that they could rebuild everything. And that is the great wealth that comes from oil, if, that, if they would have used it wisely. Um, I mean, it, it, it's a, I can imagine hundreds of years, if, if you know, this world lasts hundreds of years, when historians are looking back and when oil is no longer a factor, how will they evaluate the way that the wealth that came from this natural resource that was right under the feet of Muslim for hundreds of years, how will they evaluate what Muslims ended up doing with this wealth? Okay. But putting clear dots on letters, making th- making matters of belief clear. لَقَدْ كَفَرَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ هُوَ الْمَسِيحُ بْنُ مَرْيَمُ وَقَالَ الْمَسِيحُ يَا بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ اعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ رَبِّي وَرَبَّكُمْ إِنَّهُ مَنْ يُشْرِكْ بِاللَّهِ فَقَدْ حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ الْجَنَّةِ وَمَأْوَاهُ النَّارِ وَمَا لِلظَّالِمِينَ مِنْ أَنْصَارٍ لَقَدْ كَفَرَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ ثَالِثُ ثَلَاثَةٍ وَمَا مِنْ إِلَٰهٍ إِلَّا Remember that the ayah that tells us is to believe in Allah and to believe in the hereafter and to do good. Now, but the belief in Allah, it, you must believe in Allah as a single God. Now, believing in, now we get, and this is not for me, this is even in Alm Kalam itself that have a lot of discussions about this. That, you know, clearly if you believe that Jesus was God, as many Christians after Nasiya maintained, that is not believing in the one and only God. Now, what if you believe that it's one God but with three Akanim or three, what is Aknum? Uh, how do you translate that? Half the spaces. 
hypostasis. Oh, oh, yeah, hypostasis. You know, Allah Alam, you know, is, and I, my own, my own conviction is Allah knows what is in a person's heart. If they truly associate partners with God, if they truly believe that Mary, for instance, was divine, or if they truly believe that God is divisible, then that's a problem. And as the Quran makes clear, it's a, it could be it's an insurmountable problem. Um, Imam Ibn Arabi has a very interesting discussion about um Allahu alayhi jannah wa ma'wahu nar being habitated in, because he, he and like a lot of Sufis he, he understands it as being habitated in the fire of separation you cannot achieve union with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unless you truly attain understanding of what Allah is and as long as you associate partners with God there is you become as if habitated literally settled in the fire of separation of of non-understanding of a state of ignorance now whether you accept that or not but it is Allah knows what is in people's hearts and Allah knows whether the as I've met quite a few Christians who effectively their understanding of God is truly that it is one and only God and you know and and they 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 try to apologize for various catechism about Jesus in a variety of ways what is settled in your heart I believe is what matters do you truly divide God do you offend God by believing in a divisible God or is God to you one and only and of course to, to be this is a Subhanallah, a, a, a clear point that those and the embracing the doctrine of the church, the the, the belief in the a Trinity, the Trinitarians, that those that insist that God is part of a Trinity and so on, describe them describing them as kufar, meaning that they clearly their system of belief is not the Muslim system of belief. Subhanallah, you look at, there is a debate in current Egypt where, believe it or not, the Coptic Church, although the Coptic Church considers, and, and I've, I've read enough Coptic literature to tell you that they describe Muslims as kuffar, but the Coptic Church 
after the coup in Egypt, complained to Sisi's regime that they don't want Muslims to describe them as kuffar. Why? They said, well, because that's dangerous. That puts our lives at risk. And so Sisi's regime unleashed the Mufti and Azhar and you know all their goons to go around saying you can't call the Christians kuffar. Subhanallah, although Surah Al-Ma'idah quite explicitly says that kuffar meaning that they don't believe in what we believe in. Kufr is to a rejection. So when the, the Coptic Church describes Muslims as kuffar, the Coptic Church is, is accurate. According to their system of belief, Muslims are reject their doctrines. But subhanAllah, that, that, that the, the Quran needed to make this very clear that don't ever get confused about the doctrine of Trinity and sort of try to marry Tawheed to Trinity. Um, I wonder if our, if our Muslim ancestors would have known that the day will come where you know, a, a, a nation was of the size of Egypt would go around saying, don't call Christians kuffars. Okay. So this message is reaffirmed, and I don't really have, you know, much to say. Again, that al-Masih, who the Messiah was, who Jesus was, that he was but a prophet, and that his mother was a siddiqa. A, 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 a siddiq is a person of high special status with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, but you know, if you if we can use the word in Islam, a holy person. Uh, but that fundamentally, they were human. This is seventy-five. Okay. I'm I'm trying to see if I if I have anything to say about seventy-seven, seventy-eight. Oh, okay, yeah. So, and the Quran, in in my view, quite precisely describes the deification of a prophet as ghulu, because this was a consistent pattern in medieval history, especially pre-Islamic history, that in the same way that the human beings deified kings and queens, whatever was put in a truly elite status, the clear tendency in early history was to deify and deification, what what that deification meant is very complicated. 
because it, it meant many different things in many different contexts and in many different situations. But it always arose out of a sense of elitism, that someone could not be truly good unless they are divine. That in, 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 there's a wonderful article I read years ago, I don't even remember who wrote it, about the that part of what the medieval world rebelled against was the rationalism of Greek philosophy that rejected deification of the truly gifted because there was in in the medieval world a truly skeptical outlook vis-a-vis humanity that a normal human being could not be truly good and that the truly good had to be either angelic or divine, in other words, superhuman, because the skeptical outlook towards the the common, the laity, is that the laity is always ignorant, um, barbaric, uh, stupid, silly, or, you know, all the faults, and all the good qualities are reserved for the elite. But the elite cannot share with the laity just common attributes. The elite had to be distinguished from the laity by the elite being considered divine. So when the Quran describes that as ghulu, to my mind, I say, wow, that's exactly it. Because the reason you deified is because of your skepticism and negative outlook as to the common human being. It could, Jesus could not be truly good unless Jesus was not like other human beings. Part of the, and I've said this repeatedly, because Muslims have never said it, and it's amazing that they haven't, that part of the Islamic revolution was to come and to restore belief in the lay human being, the average human being. No, a human being can be super without being divine. Now, this is a huge thing this is why Muslims found it unoffensive to read and embrace Greek philosophy. It, it, Greek philosophy talked reason. Socrates was not divine. Aristotle was not divine. Plato was not divine. They understood that logic. The church fought Greek philosophy because they didn't understand that logic. How could the layperson reach 
I can't hear, so I often have a hard time pronouncing words. Ecclesiastical aspirations. How could the layperson reach that celestial position? That has to be only for the elite who are touched by the divine. So, subhanAllah, I mean, just the Quran has these numerous little things that make you pause and say, wow, you know, just what an amazing text. So when the Quran describes it as ghulu, it's exactly that, being excessive, being um, extremist, literally. It's like, you know, your, 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 your way of thinking about the nature of human beings is messed up. Okay, now, this is, what time is it? It's three, okay. This is a very important point now. So, finally we get, لُعِنَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ بَنِي إِسْرَائِيلَ عَلَى لِسَانِ دَاوُودُ وَعِيسَ بْنِ مَرْيَمُ ذَلِكَ بِمَا عَصَوْا وَكَانُوا يَعْتَدُونَ So this is 78. Those of the children of Israel who were bent on denying the truth have already been cursed by the tongue of David and, and Jesus, the son of Mary. This is because they rebelled against God and persisted in transgressing the, the bounds of what is right. They would not... Pre- they would not would not prevent one another from doing whatever hateful things they did. Vile indeed was what they were wont to do. So now here Allah takes us deeper into what Allah means by Allah's law, hukmullah, by telling us it is something that it appears in the Bible, in the case of David, highly obscured by mythology, in the case of Jesus, highly obscured by textual interventions that made Jesus more like the fairy tale of the visit, a, a, a visit by God, rather than a thoroughly human project about justice. So what is that, what is that primordial law that God is reminding us of? Reminding Muslims in talking about He's saying, listen, David was not about coming to make the chosen people victorious. David was not about a king as as if you if you read in Jewish theology, David is often actually commits atrocities, but it's all justified by 
the fact that God sent David to make the chosen people truly chosen. So if you're reading in the Bible, you're shocked at what the Bible claims David does. In the Quran, Allah is saying, get it right. David, like Jesus, were about bringing back people to what is right. What, what, was, what was the problem? The problem is the problem that Muhammad is confronting with these people. That people would commit injustice, sin, errors, and they had abandoned the duty of al-amr al-maruf al-nihan al-munkar. So that is precisely why Ibn Mas'ud, for instance, in commenting about Surah Al-Ma'idah, verse 79, transmits that the Prophet, and this is transmitted on Turuq Mukhtalifa, not just Ibn Mas'ud, but it's transmitted on Ibn Mas'ud, on Ibn Abbas, and, and Ibn Umar, several, several Turuq, that the Prophet, comments about this, and says, so the Prophet reportedly in, in various versions of the same hadith is that the Allah comment says, listen, these people reached a point where they would not stand up for haq. There would be a zalim, an, an oppressor, an unjust person, and they would not resist the oppression. Either you will stand up and forcibly establish what is justice and what is right, or Allah will curse you as Allah cursed them. So, there are a bunch of traditions that says that 79 is specifically that people were violating the Sabbath and the rabbis feared the repercussions of standing up to seeing the Sabbath violated. And so they did nothing. And then when the Allah punished them, they punished all of them together. Those who violated the Sabbath and those who failed to stand up for um, upholding the Sabbath. But these traditions are, don't go back to the Prophet they go back to, to, to commentaries by successors, uh, mostly tabi'in. But the, the ahadith about this is, and look at the thematic unity here, is that Muslims understand that the law of God is, you know, egality, equity, fairness, etc., etc., the things we talked about. 
but that it doesn't establish itself. It requires that you uphold it. And the reason David was sent was not to play favorites with the chosen people, not like the Bible makes it sound, but to restore the principles of justice among the people again by standing up against the wrongdoer. And that the entire message of Jesus, and Jesus, is, it's fascinating because the, in the New Testament, there's a wonderful book by Alan Watson about Jesus as a rebel from a legal point of view. You, you can actually, I mean, I don't know if it's still in print, but if you find it in the library, it's, it's well worth reading. Because what Alan Watson demonstrates is that Jesus, there are many reports in the, in the New Testament of Jesus as fundamentally a reformer. He goes to the temple. He sees the rabbis committing haram things in the temple. Uh, and he condemns them in the most uncompromising terms. In fact, he is vocal, he is loud, he says these metaphors that are devastating. Alan Watson analyzes the import of some of the metaphors in the New Testament, these stories that Jesus tells. And the import of these stories is that you people are disgusting all the injustice you are committing and that that's why the wave of hatred directed at Jesus and the betrayal of Jesus to the Romans and even getting the Romans involved although the Israelites didn't like to get the Romans involved is because Jesus has made himself into a nuisance for justice and but Commentators, especially under the influence of Paulistic Christianity, the Christianity of Paul, sort of then adds these glosses of Jesus as instead of a person who stands up for justice, as this sort of, um, you know, flowery person, weak person who goes around, says, love everyone, and, you know, and he says that, you know, the two images are irreconcilable, but it is clear that there are, and in fact, it goes back, you know, the, the, the discussion into the various manuscripts, the Greek manuscripts and, and so on, that the, the sort of, the attempt to produce a record of who Jesus was and to produce a Jesus that would be likable to Roman authorities. And that was Paul's function. Paul was not an Israelite. And Paul was very much concerned about selling Jesus to the non-Israelites. And he watered down Jesus and his message quite a bit to make him sellable to the elite, which eventually worked, when you know when uh, uh, the wife of the emperor, uh, uh, the wife of Theodore, you know, uh, 
embraces Christianity. Um, so where Christianity becomes from the, the religion of the downtrodden to the religion of the elite. But it's that's a whole... So God says, you know, we've sent David to restore justice. We've sent Jesus with the same message. And because people would commit wrong and no one would stand up for justice. So when the Prophet ﷺ comments on this, he says... You are either going to follow a different track or Allah will curse you like Allah cursed them. So some of the most fascinating discussions about this is that several people, and these I, I I'm when I looked into it, were often new converts, not the old disciples, not the old timers like Abu Bakr and Omar and, and Ali and so on, but that they would come to the Prophet and say, but wait, how about, didn't Allah says that as long as you believe it, it doesn't harm you, who doesn't believe? kafar. That whoever, you know, doesn't believe that, that, um, uh, would not affect you. And yeah, so I, I so for instance, here's an example of a report. So the Prophet responds to this, and this is the stuff you never hear in Islamic centers or you know, and it will never hear at at uh, Sisi's Islam in Egypt or uh, MBS's Islam in Saudi or whatever. The Prophet ﷺ responds to this, says, Ya ayyuhal nas, ayna zahabtum? Innama hiya la yadurrukum man dalla mina kuffar idha ahtadaytum. And, and I'll translate in a second. And Ibn Mas'ud commented, says, Wala yatawahham ahad anna fi hazihi al-aya rukhsah fi tark al-amr bil-ma'roof wa nahyan al-munkar. If you look at, just, oh, I forgot to tell you this. If you look at 105, if you look at 105, Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, alaykum anfusakum, la yadurrukum man dalla idha ahtadaytum, ila Allahi marji'akum jami'an, fayunbi'kum bima kuntum ta'amalun. So 105 is saying, oh people, believers, worry about yourself. Who it, it doesn't harm you. Whoever does not believe, that will not affect you. So people, as I said, who had not the old timers, came and started saying, well, see, then we don't need to worry about Al-Amr Bil-Ma'ruf Al-Munkar. We don't need to worry about this the obligation to stand up for justice and the prophet والسلام, then says what's wrong with you how could you possibly understand it as saying this what it's saying is that as long as you are with allah 
the kuffar, those who do not believe, cannot harm you. In other words, you've surrendered to Allah. You've accepted Allah's fate. So you no longer worry about the kuffar. It's not telling you as I've heard so many shiuch at azhar corrupt this ayah intentionally and say, oh, this says, uh, just worry about yourself. Worry about yourself and your family. I've heard Hamza Yusuf do, do the same thing, by the way. Uh, just, you know, don't worry about any other issues. When I know that, I mean, I heard it from Sheikh Al-Azhar, who I know knows these traditions that I'm talking about. Because in a different age, in the days of Sadat, when Sadat was in power, he gave us a halaqa in which he went over these hadiths. But suddenly, you know, now that he's on TV with Sisi's government, suddenly he forgot all the hadiths that he was, he taught us. But, so, look, Here's an example, a sample text. لا تأمرن بالمعروف أو وتنهون عن المنكر أو لا يوشك أن يعمكم الله بعقاب من عنده. So what, what this hadith is saying is that people started jumping on this ayah 105 to justify selfishness and self-centeredness and abandoned the obligation of al-amr al-ma'ruf al-nahyan al-munkar. But, the, I, and I, unfortunately, I didn't write what text this is from, but anyway, that it says that, but Abu Bakr said that he heard the Prophet ﷺ say that you are misapplying this ayah. You are reading this ayah and you are misapplying it. Either you uphold the duty to enjoin the good or and forbid the evil. Gers doesn't like the, the expression enjoin the good and forbid the evil. So like I'm now I always say it in Arabic rather than translate it because I, I don't know how to translate it. Anyway, uh, or the consequences is as Allah told us in Surah Al-Ma'idah is the consequences is a fitna that is going to befall you a punishment so going back to 79 when Allah says كانوا لا يتهنهون عن منكر فعلوه they would they would always fail to stand up to what is wrong. This is the worst. So we, we jumped ahead in 105 because of the way that 105 was used to try to 
to confuse the message of Surah Al-Ma'idah because this has to do again with remember Surah Al-Ma'idah is the, the the final covenant and it is telling Muslims what is the basic primordial law that is anchored from the time of the time that a brother killed a brother and in a failure of moral comprehension and that was affirmed by Ibrahim and then that was affirmed repeatedly and Allah puts makes things clear by saying David and Jesus were about rebelling against now why the, the whole trajectory of those who do wrong people don't stand up to that wrong in other words what is that about what why would people fail to stand up to what is wrong well the constant it's not because people fail to do so when there is no cost associated to resisting what's wrong what the constant historical practice and the practice that david Dawood rebelled against or reformed and that Isa reformed is that it is always when the powerful and the privileged do wrong those who should stand up and object to the wrongdoing committed by the powerful and the privileged fail to do so and then the powerful and the privileged it goes from the logic of them breaching a duty to thinking of whatever they do as an entitlement and this is exactly the incremental dynamic through which entitlements of privilege and elitism is created and eventually you know it, it, it we often mythologize the, the think that and and we we cheapen the entire thing when we say oh well amr al maruf al-munkar is going around is is like you know chasing a woman because she is in the men's section in the mosque that's not what david dawood was sent to do that's not what Isa was, was sent to do. And I'm telling you, this is not what Muhammad was sent to do. The, the, it was not these situations where you go try to reprimand someone when in fact the reprimand adds to your intoxications of power and makes you feel powerful and smug in your morality. It is these situations where you are challenging the entitlements of the elite. Those who thought, who went to the Prophet Muhammad remember the basic paradigm, problematic that Surah Al-Ma'idah deals with, is that they went to the Prophet wanting to preserve their privileges. And Surah Al-Ma'idah is the symphony 
of saying, how dare you? That's not God's law. And you know that that's not God's law. And it was never God's law. And this man, the Prophet Muhammad will never stand for it. So when I, when, when modern Muslims, do you see the extent, the scale of what that corruption, when, when, when Allah dedicated the final message to us of the Quran to warning us about this particularly, and then you've undermined the entire thing by somehow making God's law about these sha'air that we, Allah has told us, you, you can differ about. You know, each of you follow the sha'ira that you believe in and it's up to Allah. Allah will tell us at the end who's right. Okay, what time is it? It's 8.55. Yeah, okay. So, 80 and 81. Look. Tara kathiran minhum. يتولون الذين كفروا لبئس ما قدمت لهم أنفسهم أن سقط الله عليهم وفي العذاب هم خالدون ولو كانوا يؤمنون بالله والنبي وما أنزل إليه ما اتخذوهم أولياء ولكن كثيرا منهم فاسقون So 80 and 81 You can't read it out of the context of the ayah and what it's talking about What it's talking about is that those Ahl Kitab, the same Ahl Kitab who are corrupting the divine law, who had, who wanted to maintain their privileges and the relationship of elitism, who supported them? What the Quran often calls al munafiqun or what in truth, not just the munafiqun, but in, indeed many of newcomers to Islam who in the same way that these guys wanted to maintain their privileges and, and to be even more specific, the Meccan aristocracy, the Qurayshi aristocracy also wanted to maintain their privileges, also didn't want to abide by the same standards of justice that was part and parcel of the law of Medina. And they found in these folks ideological allies. And so they they formed this I mean I have to describe it as an offensive alliance to try to apply pressure on the Prophet okay we've entered your religion but we don't want to forgo our privileges and our system of exclusionary logic 
Now, of great interest, remember when I told you the names of a lot of the tribes, the clans that apostated. It is no coincidence that the same clans that we read had befriended or allied themselves or grew chummy with Jewish um, populations and Christian populations and started, you know, uh, objecting to the egalitarian logic that in, firmly in my belief that gave a slave the same rights as a free human being in the which was shocking to them because we, we have that in 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 in, in repeated narratives it, many of these same clans were the clans that apostated shortly after the death of the prophet which in my view when it became clear that the initially there was a, a, a desire to have the Qureshi aristocracy take power after the death of the Prophet immediately. But it became clear that when, when Abu Bakr succeeded that that's not going to happen. And that the sort of the prophetic paradigm is going to continue with Abu Bakr. So they quit the, the game. They said, okay, we're out. And that resulted in the civil wars, which as we said before in Surat al-Ma'idah, it sort of predicted and Allah predicted tells us that those who will be victorious are the people who love God and are loved by God and are committed to the principles. They will prevail. Sort of predicting a bit of history before it in fact took place. Now if you notice in all of this I'm going to close with this. I intentionally disabuse myself of all sectarian biases. I'll, I'll even be, be, I personally, if I was living at the time, I have no doubt in my mind that I would have clearly sided with Imam Ali as the rightful successor after the Prophet But that's a matter of passion and love. That's a matter of passion and love. Because studying the legacy of Imam Ali, he is the closest as in personality, in ethics, in morality to the Prophet But when I analyze history, you have to disabuse of your, yourself of your sectarian biases or your passions and emotions and look at the facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground is precisely what I, what I said, that the Meccan aristocracy was not happy with Abu Bakr taking power 
that Abu Bakr clearly sent the message that he is going to uphold the Sunnah of the Prophet, والسلام, and that because of that, they rebelled and quit the whole Islamic project. But Surah Al-Ma'idah very if anchors us into the events will uh, that will unfold that if you are anchored in Surah Al-Ma'idah you have a very comfortable understanding of why human beings do what they do and it's as if Allah is holding your hand and saying nothing is surprising here nothing is surprising here Allah knows the sunnah of human beings from the time that a brother killed a brother from the time a father burned his son Ibrahim threw him in a fire from the time of Dawood when Dawood turned was co-opted and made into a king that is coming to 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 the benefit of a chosen people and willing to commit all types of injustices for a chosen people all falsehoods and all lies when even the message of Jesus was corrupted and turned into a God sending his son to suffer a sacrifice and very medieval logic instead of what it was. Always about God's law. God's law amongst human beings. Okay, so that makes us, we stop at 81. 81. Okay, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Who's still with us? Uh, okay. Hello. Uh, Grace is panicking. Uh, <laughs> like, I can see her shuffling papers and like writing stuff and and I can feel her panic. Assalamualaikum. Yes, panic always sets in at this final bit when I'm like, oh my God, he's almost done. Oh my God, what am I going to say? So hopefully I'll try and, and uh, share whatever highlights I got to. Um, but just uh, first before I say anything, I was sort of surprised when you said, um, Grace doesn't like the, the one when you say enjoining the good and forbidding the evil. I, this is actually well, you said that uh, a long time, long ago. time ago. Yeah, and I'm actually really, um, I'm, I'm sort of impressed that you remembered this. So I gave a talk back when we were in Los Angeles years ago when we first started, um, kind of complaining about like the language that's used because enjoin is like one of these words that no one actually ever uses anymore. So enjoin, like you know, it's it's like an ancient word and. You know, the whole point is, shouldn't we be communicating using language that, you know, speaks to us in the epistemology of our time, right? So if it's more about um, encouraging people to do good, it wasn't a big deal. But so it's okay, you can use enjoin. I mean, it's like obviously <laughs> like very much connected to our tradition. But um, anyway, but language obviously is really important. So, uh, okay. Um, so alhamdulillah, this was amazing as always. Um, and just to share some highlights that I was able to chicken scratch down. Um, so Surah Ma'idah as an example of a living text um, that can separate itself from its context and obviously, you know, speak to us and, and Muslims at, at any any time and age and context. Um, reminding us that the criticism of the Israelites um, is really to not about criticizing them, but about warning Muslims 
um, and that, you know, for example, the Israelites made the rabbinic class sovereign instead of God and um, because it, it served the whole idea of the chosen people very well, but that in turn would make God obviously not a priority um, and that whole ethic or that approach leads to materialism, exceptionalism, and elitism um, and makes it very difficult to think ethically and morally um, that Islam, you know, came as an ideological revolution um, and, or Islam came, and the Quran would say that uh, if the Jews and the Christians had actually upheld their own ethical messages um, in the Torah and the Gospel, Allah would have been pleased um, and saying that, you know, some do uphold it, but most didn't, and that was teaching us the ethic of discernment, um, <clears throat> that God's law is one, and that there is no logic of exceptionalism. Um, you know, the message is obviously about e equality and equity, um, egalitarianism, justice, and this is a serious ethical covenant. Um, and that when you fail to keep the covenant, then, and you, you know, lose sight of truth and justice, you become deaf and blind, and this is clearly a warning to us, and actually even connects to uh, your chuppah yesterday, about what happens when we lose sight of truth and you know being able to identify it and acting accordingly. Um, the the verses 72 through 73 very powerful to be clear about you know Jesus is not the same as God. Um, God is not you know point uh, one one part of the Trinity. Mary is not divine but you know a holy person. Uh, Jesus and Mary they were human beings. They ate food. Um, and very important to the whole idea of the Islamic Revolution is restoring this belief in the average and the lay human being, that you can actually be super without being divine, and that gets into the whole like medieval um, you know, mindset. Um, and actually Joe pointed out that you know, in uh, Prophet's Pulpit, Volume 1, um, we have a whole chapter um, about this idea of the medieval mindset. Um, Liberation from Mythology is the title of the chapter. Um, which was amazing in talking about this point about extremism or gulum. Gulum. Um, <clears throat> and that it's always about God's law um, and that, you know, obviously um, Jesus and David were sent um, to, um, you know, really reinforce the notion of justice and standing up for what's right. Um, and it was not that they came, that David came, for example, to, to help the idea of the chosen people, but because no one was standing up for what was wrong. Um, they were sent to, to rebel and stand up for justice. Um, and, um, okay. So, and I think, I mean, it was extremely powerful, the last part that you shared with us about studying history and that, you know, your feeling about um, not having any sectarian biases but really focusing on the facts on the ground and that um, if you are anchored in in Surah Al-Ma'idah and what what God is telling you you know you understand that it is about God's justice um, and you know a lot of this I mean God obviously knows what human beings are able to do and capable of doing but if you if you understand and really embrace this message that um, you are um, you will if you're anchored in it then you understand our world and, and what, what needs to happen to be victorious. So I'm sure there's a lot more that I could have gotten, but <laughs> so alhamdulillah, truly, truly amazing. Um, 
And I think that this whole journey with this last surah is just is so powerful. I mean, I know like when I've had conversations with people in passing, like, oh, we're on Surah Ma'idah, the last message that God left us with right before the death of the Prophet, peace be upon him. I think people are really blown away. Um, and it's the weightiness of it you just feel with every, every session. So thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Um, I don't know how many more days, but take your time. It's thank you so much. It's a really we actually didn't close to the end of just Ramadan. Right. We still have yeah. more to do on the short stories. <laughs> like I don't want this journey to end. It's so great. So anyway, thank you everybody. Have a wonderful rest of the week, and inshallah, we will see you next week. Assalamualaikum. Take care. Have a good rest of the weekend.